is David Suiza. Welcome to my podcast. We have Sarah Bloomfield today, director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum straight from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, David. I'm so happy to be here with you. You have your big night tonight, your annual gala. Very excited to be here for our annual event in Los Angeles. This community has been wonderful to us. And you've been involved now with the museum for 20-some years? Actually, almost 33. 33, but I'm saying as director? As director, yes, 20 years. And you, you started way back. You were telling me earlier where this whole thing started was Jimmy Carter and Elie Wiesel, correct? Just give us a little bit of the history. So in 1978, President Carter set up a special commission to study the appropriateness and feasibility of a Holocaust memorial on the National Mall and asked Elie Wiesel to chair it. And that commission spent a year studying that challenge and came back and made a very insightful recommendation to President Carter. They said, a memorial is insufficient. If you're going to do something that would be part of America's national civic culture on the mall, it had to be an educational institution. And they specifically said a museum that would teach the American public the history and the lessons of the Holocaust. Wow. So it's interesting because there's so many memorials there and I could see how they would conclude that and this was taking it a step further but it's a it, it, it's such an impossible subject to cover and it took years and years and years before you figured out how to do it right so they started in 78 you said so in 78 the report was issued in 79 in 1980 uh, a, a a council was established United States Holocaust Memorial Council. And you started in 86. And I started in 86. And the challenge there was to the council was they had to raise private funds to build an American National Memorial Museum to the victims of the Holocaust. And what year was it finally built? We finally opened in 1993. Right. So you're looking at, wow, like 15-some years before it happened. And, you know, that's a big question. How do you build anything to the Holocaust, just a memorial even, or just a museum, and I don't mean just, yet let alone one on the most important real estate in this country, America's National Mall. That's our civic landscape. And people could say, well, what is it doing here? And one of the things that we asked ourselves is, over and over again, why is it on this piece of real estate? And one of the answers of course, is that this story of the Holocaust, and if you want to understand why it was possible, it happened in a democratic country. Germany had a democratic constitution, a rule of law, free speech. It was highly educated, and yet democracy completely failed and collapsed into war and genocide. And then you look at Germany today, receiving millions of refugees, and you think, oh, my God, how can that country have done this atrocious act. And I also look at Germany today, and I see, yes, Germany has done many things and has taken responsibility for its past, Um, but you also have, very alarmingly, the rise of a far-right party, the Alternative for Germany party. They have 92 seats in the German parliament. It's the largest opposition party, and they actually have rebuked the Germans for this Holocaust 
remembrance culture. Right. Mm-hmm. They call it, this is a culture of shame, and we need to move on. Right. And what's so important that's happening in Germany today is that all the other political parties are rejecting the alternative for Germany and what they stand for. Yeah, I mean, the Holocaust is one of the most complicated subjects for me to wrap my mind around. I wasn't raised with it in Morocco. I just I found out about it when I moved to Montreal. And I have never seen any event in human history have such so many ripples, so much traumatic uh, repercussions decades and decades later. At the Journal, we have a nonstop submission of content that connects to the Holocaust. It's just very difficult for me to wrap my mind around it. And one of the reasons is uh, it feels so far, far, far away. And I look at the status of Jews today in America, and despite all the challenges and problems and sign of anti-Semitism, I just can't imagine that happening again. You know what I mean? It just reminds me how dark and evil humanity reached. I mean, the lowest, lowest, lowest level. It's just very difficult for me to comprehend the, the mere fact of the Holocaust, Sarah. But I think you hit on the exact point that the tendency is to think this is incomprehensible. Mm. And I think that the point of the museum is to say, wait a minute, that's why we must comprehend it. Because it says something, yes, it says something very important about Germans and their allies and collaborators and Jews. But it also says what you hinted at, something very important about human nature. And one thing we know from anti-Semitism is it has a long history well before the Holocaust. And it's clear sitting here in 2019 that it's going to have a long history after the Holocaust. The Holocaust is, though, the example of the the ultimate example of unchecked state-sponsored anti-Semitism. But I think the question is, the asking the question is, the the museum is trying to do as we think about our educational focus and we're trying to reorient our education for the 21st century is to get at the question you're asking, which was, why was it possible? How was it possible? And I would say that's the ultimate question that scholars and educators journalists keep asking themselves, and we'll be sitting here at this table in 50 years asking the same question, but that's what we want people to ask. Why was it possible? How could it have been different? And what does it mean for me today and my own responsibilities, whether I'm in America, whether I'm in Europe, whether I'm living in the Middle East? I like what you're saying when the the phrase state-sponsored, because what we see now is there's always these cases of anti-Semitism, that are not state-sponsored, stuff that happens at the grassroots. I was uh, speaking with Bernard-Henri Lévy last week right here, and he made the case that in France, it's the opposite. The state is clearly protective of its Jewish population, and yet the anti-Semitism is sort of bubbling up from, from the ground. And I guess, you know, there's no use trying to say which one is worse, but I would think that the Holocaust itself is a cautionary tale for state-sponsored because that's definitely something that we have to keep an eye on because once the state is behind it, all hell breaks loose. Right. That's why in France what's so worrisome is, for example, the Marine Le Pen party, which is now a prominent opposition party in France or the Alternative for Germany party uh, in in the German parliament. Mm. We now see people with very questionable backgrounds 
gaining political power. Now, the German state, the French state have been very strong that we will not tolerate this. But it will require more than just the states, and it will require more than education. It's going to require civil society pushing back against this. And Mm -hmm. that's, I think, something that we understand from history. Uh, I mean, I look often at the civil rights movement in this country. What was the big turnaround was when white people joined the civil rights movement and Mm -hmm. and were partners in leading that. And I mean, you've had, what, like 45 million visitors since you opened, which is an an extraordinary number. And 93% are not Jewish. Mm -hmm. And 22% are minority. So we hope that they will take away, wow, hate is a bad disease. Anti-Semitism, it may begin with hate against the Jews, but hate is a virus. It spreads to all of society. And we want them to take away that there's something they can do. They should not feel helpless. Right. Was anti-Semitism a part of the original genesis of, of the idea with Jimmy Carter and Eloise Zell? Was that part of it? Actually, it's very interesting that it wasn't that... Their focus, uh, and when Elie Wiesel wrote his report to the president, the focus was very much on Holocaust memory, Holocaust education, and then the third pillar was genocide prevention, Mm -hmm. that the museum should be for victims today what was not done for the Jews of Europe in the 30s. But really, no one then anticipated what we see today with anti-Semitism, with Holocaust denial, Holocaust distortion and politicization, particularly in Europe, um, they didn't anticipate that. So how would you uh, say that your particular museum uh, differs from some of the better-known ones, like Yad Vashem and Museum of Tolerance and so forth? What's your unique niche? Well, I would say we are America's national museum to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. That means we are... You know, we're part of the American people. We sit on federal land. The American people make the museum possible. We're a statement about American values Mm. and about the uh, what I would say are some of the core lessons of the Holocaust, which is, of course, it happened in Germany was a democratic country. And so we're a statement about the fragility of democracy and of freedom, about the dangers of unchecked hate and the consequences of indifference and inaction. And we sit there in a way, you know, we sit in between the monuments to Washington and Jefferson. I think that's a very important reminder about freedom. And then we sit next to the Smithsonian, which celebrates human achievement. And we remind people, ah, this is also what humans are capable of doing. The other thing that's important about our museum is because we're part of the U.S. government, we can work internationally in ways no other institution can. What percentage of your funding comes from the government? Uh, It's about uh, 45%. Okay. And the rest we raise privately, and I just want to thank the Los Angeles community for very generously helping us with our educational outreach. And are you part of the State Department? No, we're a completely independent entity, and this is very important. We, We are speak on our own when we use our moral voice that comes from us. So we are not part of any other part of the government. And then how do you refresh? I mean, you have so many programs, so many initiatives. How do you decide how to, you know, what's your guiding light? And give me an example of an initiative that you think really fulfills your mission. Well, that's a great question. And, you know, there's, there's a saying, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. 
we're very clear on where we're going. Uh, one is we realize something that Ellie Rizal couldn't have imagined, that we have to be a global institution. The problems are global, whether it's anti-Semitism, hate, genocide. So we have to be global, and I would say the good news is we have partners in that. Our two areas of focus in that regard, the main areas, are Europe, the lands of the Holocaust, where we also see very dangerous things happening with Holocaust history and politicization and anti-Semitism, and the Middle East, where you have also seen anti-Semitism and the Holocaust politicized for other ends. So that's our big focus globally. The other thing is we have to make sure that the Holocaust is relevant to new generations. You know, they say the thing about the next generation is they never read the minutes of the last meeting. <laughs> and we're very worried about the decline in history education in this country. I don't know if you're aware of the statistic, but history majors have declined more than any other major, including the rest of the humanities. And you read statistics like 30% of Americans born after 1980 don't think it's essential to live in a democracy. A quarter of the country can't name the three branches of government. So if you don't know where you've been, how can you be a responsible citizen in guiding our country and our future to where it must be? And I think the museum has a very important role to play in filling that gap of history education. But we've got to make the Holocaust relevant. And our target audience in this, we have two areas. One is what we define as emerging adults. These, these are young people, roughly ages 17 to 30. That's a moment in life when you're making big decisions about your identity, your character, your values, family, profession. And we want to reach people at that moment in life and let them see that this is important history. It's timeless. It has messages for them about their moral responsibilities in the world as professionals, as parents, uh, as citizens. The other target group for us is leaders. And we have been working for many years with law enforcement, with the military, with the judiciary, training people in those fields through a look at their own profession in Holocaust history. So that's kind of a nutshell of where we're trying to go. I have an uncomfortable question. Uh, as you were speaking, I, I'm saying, I don't know if I could ever do your job because you have this dark, dark, dark thing that confronts you all day long, which is the horrible murder of six million people, right? And everything else that happened at the time. And how do you do that? Because, I mean, you really what, what, what you're dealing with is this dark, dark, dark product that needs to be remembered needs to be educated, needs to be taught, needs to be informed. Does that influence you, I mean, in, in a way? Because how do you deal with that, like, as, a, as, a, as an individual, as a person? Well, I would say it is true that the more you study the Holocaust, and I've obviously been studying it now for 33 years, I realize how much I have to learn. But you do understand human nature in ways that I never would have before. So I am constantly thinking about it. One of the things, by the way, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's an important tangent, that we're learning from scholarship about human nature is we used to think, for example, when you look at all the thousands of people who participated in killings of Jews, particularly in Eastern, Eastern Europe during the Holocaust, we thought they were all 
Nazi Party members, all rabid anti-Semites. Many were, but many were not. They either became anti-Semitic over time as they saw things change, or they went along for other very mundane human reasons. Peer approval, career advancement, greed. So, so you're fascinated by human nature, and I, so am I, by the way. So, so that's kind of a really hook for you. Yes, that is really a hook. really try to understand. And the other thing I want to say is working closely with survivors, they have taught me so much about resilience, about compassion. And when I have had some personal traumas in my own life, I have held them up as role models for what they have overcome and the privilege of that is uh, really special. And I do think of, you know, the future generations of people who will work at the museum will not have had that privilege. Well, one of my closest friends, and I've written so much about her, and she used to come to our Shabbat table all the time. She was a neighbor. Her name was Eva Brown. She'd lost 69 members of her family in the Holocaust. She was the biggest lover of life I've ever met. Her revenge, her, her response to the trauma was to love life. She had leukemia mm. and she would never say no. She would always, always want to go out and enjoy life. She was just an unbelievable woman. And, you know, she died a few years ago and we really miss her and my family. And it was that love of life at, at the same time that she had that horrible darkness of losing her, her brothers and sisters and all the members of her family. It's like, I just couldn't believe how much she loved life. Uh, that's exactly been my, ex my experience. And their compassion for humanity and their sense that they're never giving up, that's what they taught me, never give up. You see, I, I wonder, because you said, I, I like what you said, human nature, and then you, you also said, like, the new generation not that interested in history. I wonder if, if they see the Holocaust as this just real bad news and I'm not in the mood for bad news and it's too dark and I don't want to deal with it six million Jews died sort of you know I'm looking for good news I want to be inspired and so forth maybe they're missing this thing that I got out of the Holocaust which is my relationship with Eva Brown where my experience with the Holocaust was through the lens of a life lover so the darkness and the light were sort of woven together you know Sarah so that's, you know, when we think about our exhibitions and our educational goals, to be quite honest, if someone says at the end of going through our exhibition, that was really terrible and really sad. And depressing. We failed. Oh, okay. That's a failure for us. Good stuff. So we want people at the end of that exhibition to say, oh, my God, this seemed unthinkable, but it happened. What would I have done if I was living then, and then we want them to go ahead and ask one more question, which is, what will I do now? We want to provoke what we call critical thinking. Mm. And critical thinking, you know, Germany was very highly educated, the Weimar Republic, probably one of the most educated nations in the world, more Nobel Prizes than any other country, and yet look what happened. So it's not just education, it's educating people to be critical thinkers about the world they live in. It's about the information they're getting. Today, that's a big issue with the Internet. And to be critical thinkers about their roles. So our museum is designed 
that we not only at the end of our exhibition, we show them examples of people who did not go along. That could be rescuers. It could be Jews who resisted. It was ultimately American forces that had to, unfortunately, you know, defeat the Nazis to end the Holocaust. Um, But to show what choices were possible, and that choice was possible. And the exhibit ends with that very famous quote from Martin E. Moeller, you know, first they came for the social, I wasn't a socialist, then they came for me and no one stood out. And the important thing about that quote is not that he didn't speak up, but we also add at the end where we explain who he was, this pastor, obviously not Jewish, but he was an early Nazi supporter. And that's what we want people to ask themselves. When am I maybe even inadvertently being complicit with something that is potentially really dangerous, anti-Semitic, hateful, racist, genocidal, whatever. We, have to, we want people to ask that question of themselves. You know, I saw an incredible example the other night of exactly what you're saying. It was a story in the Warsaw Ghetto of resilience, creativity, and imagination. And ironically, it was a journalist, Emmanuel Ringelblum. Ringelblum, right. And it's just what you're saying. So talk about human nature. His human nature was he's a journalist and he needs to record this. And this is a hopeful, it's a sign of light in the deepest darkness. And they take you through everything they did month after month after month. And they had to hide all the evidence in the archives. And they were just desperate to tell their story. But it was really a very inspirational kind of episode within the deepest darkness. It's, it's an amazing story. I'm so glad you brought it up. And we have this as part of our exhibit, too. Emmanuel Ringelblum understood that Jews were living through something historic. And he, being Jewish, was also very much interested in creating a record for the future. And what he did was he organized that underground archive to track everything, daily life. And he said something I think is very interesting. He said, we must record the truth no matter how hard it is. That means we are going to tell the truth about the Jews, the truth about the Germans, and the truth about the Poles. And he even said, sometimes there will be good Germans and good Poles and bad Jews. We must tell the truth about everything because that's we stand for that higher ideal. Now, to have that thought in the middle of this onslaught against you as a Jew— to me, speaks volumes about this extraordinary man. So I would imagine that this would be a really important part of your your sort of mission is to show these examples of human resiliency because that is something we can really identify with. Yes, and we have, you know, I, I actually just gave a tour recently to individuals who were victims of persecution from all over the world. Uh, Yazidis from Iraq and Rohingya from Burma and every places in China, Uyghurs from China. And they all connected to that. They saw themselves right with the victims. And when I would talk about the victims' courage and response, these people burst into tears on my tour. They were Mm -hmm. so engaged. So that's the universal message here, that people see themselves in this story. Correct. And in many ways... 
the Emmanuel Ringelblums of the time are sort of a model for us. Absolutely. You know, I mean, if they can do it in those extreme circumstances, and we can certainly do it, especially, you know, we have more tools. and Exactly. To record their memories and to keep track of them for the future and to tell them in a responsible way. Speaking of recording memories, obviously, you know, everyone has talked about this for years. The Shoah Foundation has done what tens of how many have they done? Like 60,000? Over 50,000. 50, it might be 52,000. Do you have relationships? Yes. With, do you have a sort of a society of uh, among among S- the world of Holocaust? Yes. Yeah, so there, you brought this up. There are many Holocaust organizations throughout the United States and around the world. And uh our, our feeling is to work with everybody. We're part of a, of a cause, and the cause is really bigger than any institution. So we look at what is it that we uniquely can bring to the cause. We've been working for over three decades now to build our collection, and this collection includes testimonies. We even have testimonies, by the way, not only from victims but from perpetrators and bystanders and collaborators, but we have artifacts that we've been collecting from liberators and from survivors and in Europe. So we're trying to build what we call the collection of record on the Holocaust, the authoritative definitive collection. That will be a resource to anybody anywhere. Would it be put online as well? Yes, that's the goal. We're trying to raise money. We just built a big new 100,000 square foot facility to house the collection, conservation, uh, the Chappelle Center actually made possible through a Los Angeles I know family. David. No more. Yeah, they made they made this center. That is that is the repository of Holocaust memory mm. for this country. So those collections will be eventually available online to anyone, anywhere, anytime. And we use those collections to create quality Holocaust educational resources, whether they're online or whether they're exhibitions that can be used by local Holocaust centers throughout the United States or in Europe. We've ju- we've been, we just had an exhibition. I just came back from Berlin in January. We opened an exhibition at the German parliament. Mm. We have an exhibition of Nazi propaganda that's been to Paris, to the Paris City Hall, to UNESCO headquarters, to the European Union in Brussels, to Tunisia. We have a colleague at a Tunisian university who hosted it there at great risk to his life, by the way. Um, He was attacked as being, you know, a Jew lover, et cetera. So we feel if we can create these great resources and other partners can use them, that's a contribution that probably no one else can do. There's a new book that's out from a dear friend of mine, uh, Omar Boom, North Africa and the Holocaust. Yes. We're going to review it next week. He was a fellow at our Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies. We know Omar well, and we feel very proud to call him a partner and to help us bring that unknown story about North Africa to the public. Yeah, and I knew nothing about it. Um, Do you do anything that connects survivors with the new generation? Uh, Do they ever get to meet? Well, one of the most, you asked me about my job and, and the emotional part of my job We have a place in the museum where survivors, we have about 80 who volunteer, Mm. and they are there every day, two or three of them, sitting at a desk in the main part of the museum to interact with the public. Mm. And every day I see them surrounded by young people, leaning over, asking them questions. And it's great for the survivors, and it's great for the kids, 
And that those are the days when you say you have the best job in the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I've actually I've experienced that because I've, I've been in these events where we have survivors in L.A. working with teenage kids on creative projects. So they'll write these like PSA commercials and these pieces of art. Of course, I'm plugging my daughter because she's president to the teen board of Remember Us. And they do these things all the time. And they connect survivors with teenagers. But rather than just talking... They create things together, and you see a sort of revival of creativity and interest in the survivors' eyes. But w this is going to run out, Sarah. We're going to run out of survivors. Of course. And actually, that's one reason why the collection is so important, because 25 years from now, those artifacts, that is going to be the sole authentic mm. witness. Mm -hmm. And we can't lose sight of the importance of that authentic part of witness. Mm -hmm. Because I worry in the age of the Internet, authenticity is very important. Real posters. Exactly. And the real, you know, doll documents. that somebody carried. And yes. the real documents. And with the rise of the Internet and the rise of Holocaust denial, that authenticity is going to become more and more important. How serious is Holocaust denial? I mean, we almost, almost ridicule it because we, we've lived with the dark truth. Yeah, you know... Deborah Lipstadt, who's the expert on this, she talks about, you know, there's hardcore denial, which is pretty much mostly refuted now, but there's something more insidious, which she calls soft, softcore denial, which would be more like distortion or politicization. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is what's very dangerous. One of the things you see in our collection, whether it's these testimonies we have from bystanders or collaborators that I think will be very important in the future are documents, is we have the perpetrators themselves talking about their crimes. So we have reports mm -hmm. sent back to Berlin, how many Jews they killed that day. We have a, mm -hmm. a video with two Polish sisters saying, here's what the Germans did on our farmland, and we witnessed it. We were in our farmhouse, and here's exactly what we heard them and saw them do. Mm -hmm. So this is not Jews saying what happened to us. Mm -hmm. uh, this is We have a Lithuanian shooter. He participated in shootings, and he is telling exactly what he did and why. I, I saw a recreation once of the famous meeting where they were deciding what's the most efficient way of murdering the most amount of Jews. That was chilling. The Vonsei Conference, yes. Mm -hmm. That was yes. chilling. And that is, again... That you can't deny that. Right. Yeah, that's Right, and then we have the minutes of this meeting. Right. This is this is the part of the collection. We have this minutes. Um, Eichmann took the minutes. But, you know, I've never heard this term, Sarah. It's really fascinating. Soft denial. I can see how that would be more threatening, because hard denial, obviously, is ridiculous. But soft denial could be really... Uh, dangerous in this age of Twitter and Instagram where people spin things so quickly. Right. And next thing you know, you're sort of undermining it and, you know, it's not that bad. Right. So this, you have this from everything from, you have a lot in Eastern Europe. Well, yes, the Holocaust happened, but we had communism too. They were two terrible regimes, two totalitarian regimes, and you kind of mush, you know, communism and the Nazism together as one bad, big bad thing. Correct. Or Correct. you see uh, also happening in Eastern Europe, people uh, who were complicit, you see this in Hungary, rehabilitation of Hungarians who were participants, or denial of the fact that you had Hungarian policemen 
involved in the deportation of Jews. And look at Poland, their and, denial. And Poland. They're, they're making that part of the law. In Poland, you have a case where, you know, it is correct. Uh, it is it is correct that these were German-built killing centers and German-operated in Poland. It is correct that some Poles helped Jews. It is also correct that some J- Poles turned Jews in. And the important thing is, is we have to get away from the politicization of history. Mm-hmm. That's why collecting the evidence and leaving history to the scholars, that is the most important thing. Now, speaking of history, there's always the elephant in the room especially since you were mentioning that you, you're rooted in a sort of, this is an American institution, right? And so much talk has been, I, I've heard so much talk over the years on how America failed the Jews during the Holocaust and we could have done so much more and president could have done so much more and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. There was a play that I saw recently that showed how, in so many ways, we collectively failed the Jews of Europe. Yes, there's no doubt about that. Um, we actually have an exhibit that we opened last year for our 25th anniversary on that very topic, because that is a question. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, sometimes people think, oh, America could have prevented the Holocaust. I think if we're going to ask the question of who could prevent it, and I think that's a good question to ask, you have to start first with the German people. Mm-hmm. And the German elites, they had responsibility for allowing the Nazis to come to power and then allowing them to solidify their power. You also have to ask about the role of France and Great Britain, who acquiesced along the way as the Nazis violated the Versailles Treaty and did all the, the Munich Agreement and all those things. So now the question is, how did America respond to the Holocaust? That is a different question. And this exhibit actually ask that question. We just put the questions right out there for visitors. Were there some uncomfortable parts of this exhibit? Yes. We say, what did America know and what did America do? And we talk about, actually, it's not even America. We use the term Americans because we paint a picture of all of American society in the 1930s and 40s. The truth is that America at that time, it's the height of anti-Semitism, measured anti-Semitism in this country, racism, there are lynchings all the time, xenophobic. Uh, America in 1924 passed a very restrictive immigration act, and the goal was to keep Jews, frankly Catholics, and other people from Eastern Europe out of the country. And do you know why that act was passed? It was passed in response to the waves of Jewish immigration from the late 19th century that came to this country. And the media failed royally. You see these tiny little articles inside on page 48 of the New York Times on the tens of thousands being murdered and nothing on the front pages. But, yes, but one thing we discovered in doing the research for this exhibit, that the whole, let's not call it the Holocaust, because no one called it that at the time, but the persecution of the Jews that was happening in Germany in the 30s was reported in every American paper. We did a project with high school students and college students across the country to go to their local archives. I saw that. Yeah. I saw that. But after the murders started to happen, for some reason, I remember there was a study, I don't know if it's the same one, that showed the percentage of those uh, stories that were inside the paper versus on the front page. Yes. 
it's true that some of them were reported inside, but the point is that there was a we perception. Knew. Exactly. People we said knew. we didn't know till the end of the war. Well, we knew. People knew. The information was available. And Americans were asked, we have polling from this period, and you oh, yeah. see it in this exhibition. They, they, did you know about what was happening to the Jews? Yes. Is it sad? Terrible? Yes. Should we allow more to come into this country? No. Mm-hmm. It was a whole different America, wasn't it? And anti-Semitism actually rises during this period mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. So you have a country that doesn't want to let anybody in. And the president probably, you know, reflects some of that collective sentiment. Yeah, FDR, he is, you know, he's, he's a politician. I'm not going to excuse him. He's running for office, but he's reading polls like every politician. Uh, Eleanor tries to push him from time to time. But you can see after Kristallnacht, which is headline news everywhere in the country, mm-hmm. and he is shocked. He even we have a note that he wrote. He's just stunned. But then he's asked at a press conference, are we, are we going to let more Jews in the country? Based on that, and he, he says, says no. no. Right, right. And there was one great hero, Peter Bergson. In fact, he was the hero of the play that I saw. And you can see him and then Stephen Weiss, who was the leader of the Jews at the time. And Peter Bergson, I, I don't know if that plays a role He's in, in your exhibit. Peter Bergson and the whole, it's, it's in our exhibit. They are constantly agitating. Mm-hmm. And thanks to the results of people like Peter Bergson and other people, actually, because the State Department was pretty horrible they during were. this period, but there were some extraordinary people in the Treasury Department who saw that the State Department was almost going out of its way to keep Jews out of the country, mm-hmm. and they saw, you know, knew what was happening to the Jews, and they pushed, and they actually took a report to uh, President Roosevelt. Their original title from the report was the acquiescence of the United States government in the murder of the Jews. I mean, it was a very strong heading. I think Secretary of the Treasury Morgenthau may have downplayed that heading, but that's Mm -hmm. the gist of what they found. And they ended up creating the War Refugee Board in January 1944. The man who ran it is somebody who really deserves recognition, John Paley, Mm -hmm. who did everything he could to try to get Jews out of Europe. He himself said... And sadly, it was just too little, too late. You know, there's two completely different ways of looking at that episode. One is to feel bitter and angry and almost resentful. But the other way is to say, oh, my God, we've come such a long way. And I just can never imagine right now that the levers of power in America would just allow something like that to happen to the Jews. Yes. I mean, obviously, some of the lessons of the Holocaust have been learned, but it is interesting, and I'm just going to speak worldwide. I think after the Holocaust, I think anti-Semitism was so tainted that it was not an acceptable norm for a long time. There were a few decades where it was... And now it's back. Correct. And now it's back. And I think that's interesting that, you know, and look, there's a big range of anti-Semitism from I don't want you in my country club to we're going to kill all Jews and lots of things in between. But that disease, and it is a disease, you have to look at history and say it's ineradicable because here we are all these decades after the Holocaust, we see it on the far left, we see it on the far right, we see the old tropes reemerging. And And if it can happen in America, it can happen anywhere. 
Yeah, I'm not saying it's going to happen in America. I'm just no, saying. No, I'm neither yeah. am I. But I'm saying, you know, uh, America was still the country of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. That America that hated Jews and didn't want Jews to come in was still an America that was rooted in the in, in Declaration of Independence and and the Constitution. So if it can happen here, right, then it can happen anywhere. So that that 1924 legislation, which basically you could say was anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic, was never even Im- immigration quotas, was not even overturned till the 1960s. Uh, okay, and just to clarify, because I'm using wrong wording here, not that it can happen here. Just what I'm saying is the rejection of Jews is what I mean. Yes. can happen here. Yes. I mean, America is an extraordinary country. We are based on an idea. And the idea is is about, you know, everyone is equal. It is about the principles in our Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. And we have moments where we fail that idea. Yes. And I hope we have moments where we work to Mm self-correct. I am worried about what I worry about the future of America is we've got to teach history. We've got to teach civics. And we've got to create a nation of young critical thinkers in the era of the Internet. That is what I'm worried about. And that's where I think the museum can make a contribution through the power of Holocaust history. Well, get us out of our uh, iPhone obsession with three-second attention spans on Twitter. How do you deal with that? Yeah. You know, uh, two of my favorite sayings about the world we live in, one is that the scarcest resource in the 21st century is human attention. It's not mine, someone else's. And Tom Friedman says the problem, one of the problems with cyberspace is everyone lives there and no one's in charge. <laughs> so that the fact that no one's in charge means you need moral anchors, critical thinking, deep understanding of history, things I think we're failing on. I do think what history can do in the Internet era is it forces you to pause. It presses the pause button and says stop for a minute on what's happening Mm -hmm. right now in this minute that's going to change in the next minute and go back and go back and reflect. Because as Voltaire said, history never repeats itself. Man always does. Mm, Very nice. How did you get into this? I got into this remarkable work in a quirk. I was um, from Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up there. I decided in my mid-30s I wanted to do something meaningful with my life, and I picked Washington as we a city. We all have these moments. We, we all do. do. something meaningful. And I said, you know, Washington would be a city I could do something meaningful. I didn't even know what it might be. And so I was contacting people I knew in Washington and coming there and trying to meet people and suddenly, in a fluky way, I got an interview, which was then a project to build a Holocaust museum on the National Mall. This was 1986. And uh, I went and had an interview with the then director, this very small staff at the time. And uh, he actually called me like a week or two later and offered me a job. And I, you know, I said, well, I don't know if I don't know enough about it. And would you pay to fly me back so that I could learn more about, you know, what it would be like? working and what this role would be. And he said, no. Oh, yeah. And I said, well, then I'm not interested. And I hung up the phone. Wow. And then I thought about it. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm cutting off my nose to spite my face. So I called him back like an hour later and said, okay. I'll pay for the flight. I'll pay for the flight. Right. I'll pay for that flight. 
but you, I mean, you need to give me at least an hour of your time to really talk through and answer some, you know, my questions so I understand what I'm getting into. I'm leaving my hometown, my family, et cetera. He said, good, I'll meet with you, but I'm not going to guarantee you an hour. And I, you know, for some reason, I just did it. And just I, think of that, Sarah, right? Those five seconds when you decided you were going to call him back just changed completely the rest of your life. Did you ever think of that? Oh, a lot. A lot. And I always, from this, have always thought, gosh, so much in life we tend to usually regret the opportunities we didn't seize. Mm -hmm. But these tiny little moments in life that just change things forever. Well, I want to thank you for giving us a whole hour. Well, thank you for your interest. <laughs> yeah. And please come visit us in Washington. I will. I will. And uh, we've been happy to send exhibitions to colleagues here in, in Los Angeles. And just thanks again to the Los Angeles community who has been with the museum from the very beginning. And everybody, get on the website. And if anybody wants to get involved with the museum, I'm sure they'll see everything on, on your website. USHMM.org. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah. Great. Thank you. Good luck tonight. Thank you. <laughs>